0: Well, welcome back to Ecclesiastes. It's been a little while. <laughs> Rather fitting reading to give us an understanding of Ecclesiastes. It's the final push. The last chapter. I'm gonna finish this book next week. And this final chapter really starts and ends with a bang and not a whimper. It's the final interrupted uninterrupted wisdom our preacher gives us before we get to the concluding thoughts. You'll notice as you get through 9 and the rest of the chapter, there's a few uh, discussions on who has collected the writing of it and some more wisdom given. But more importantly, verse 8. Verse 8 ends the same way that chapter 1 begins. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You can look at these two sides as bookends. Bookends of all the teaching of the preacher. A summation of all that we have seen, all that we do, all that we plan, is vanity. So this morning we're going to walk together again. We're going to walk together under the sun. We're going to feel the warmth upon our face once more, and we're going to think about all this life has given us. We're going to use this final bit of poetry to remind us what has been and what is to come. And what we find is a final chorus final chorus to a magnificent song, final brush strokes to a beautiful painting, well-rehearsed conclusion to a wonderful poem. That's what we'll find. One commentator says the first eight verses of chapter 12 are a description of of aging and death for every person. They go on to say that this passage is a mini-apocalypse for every person. As death is the final confrontation, the great leveler, or as I've called it in our sermon series in Ecclesiastes, the strong man. With each death, we see a small apocalypse of a person's life and memories. The language here reminds me of the apocalypse, the death of all things. So once again, we'll be confronted with death, the siren song that has kept our attention for so long. But instead of confronting the hard truth that we will all die, our preacher brings comfort. The only comfort he could think of after all this time, right? 11 chapters of his writing, and he comes to one comfort, one aspect of describing the terrible beauty of each mini-apocalypse we encounter. He says this, remember your creator. When lying in the hospital, listening to the final gasps of a person on the edge of death, remember your creator. When the sun's light begins to fade and darkness overtakes you, remember your creator. When the moon turns to blood and the mountains fall on all who are alive and each and every person cries out in anguish for the coming judgment, remember your creator. Our passage gives us a creator of all things. As a comfort for those who are dying. He does it three ways. The creator is a commiserator for the dying. He's a sympathizer for the mourning. And he is a renewer for the creation. Those are our three points for this morning. With that in mind, let's find out. Let's find this creator who is such a great comforter. First 1 will be our touch point throughout the morning. It's off this first statement that the rest of the passage reflects. Even grammatically, you can say all the words really point back to this first declaration by our preacher. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And when you look actually at our passage, the first seven verses, where is the period? Everything else is semicolon, commas, starts off and ends right there in verse seven. It's all based on the first verse. Remember your creator. So, I'll call you back there often, call you back to remember from whence you came and from where you are going. Our creator is the one who needs to fix our eyes on. For many of us, that's a rather sensical statement. Focus on God, we should be good. But the idea of doing so in our youth is kind of an interesting concept. Youth are the ones who are leaving the church. They're not the ones who are encouraging us to look to God. Why would they think of their creator? They aren't close to death. But what we find is this passage speaks to everyone not on their deathbed. Everyone's still getting out of bed in the morning. That means those in their teens, those in their 20s, those in their 50s, those in their 70s, those who are still getting up to go do life. You're still in your youth. And so remember your creator. Remember your creator in your youth when you feel invincible. When you're driving around on a warm summer night without a care in the world, when you're laughing with your friends, when you're dreaming of your future, our preacher says, remember your creator. When you're middle-aged or older, still among the youth, you're not knocking on death's door waiting to greet the strong man. Remember your creator. You're mowing your lawn, writing out the budget for your groceries next month. Remember your creator when you pick up a new book, when you plan your next vacation. Remember your creator. Why? Because the end is not so far away from all of us. As a poet, Robert Herrick, said, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. The glorious lamp of heaven, the sun, the higher he's a-getting, the sooner will his race be run, And nearer, he's to setting. We're all approaching the autumn of life. Some sooner than others. We're all trudging our way along this path. And we will one day look back and think the year of life is drawing to an end. And I have no pleasure in it. No more joy to be found. And I have lost my appreciation for all that is in front of my eyes. And I no longer remember the creator in front of me. And so the sun and the light and the moon and the stars begin darkening. Light is dwindling. The clouds bring darkness quicker. And the rain falls swiftly upon all of us as we approach the dregs of this life. And so we say again, remember your creator now. Remember him. Remember your creator at this time when the world is still in front of you. The wisdom given, to our, given by our preacher in the swan song of this magnum opus is by far the most controversial of all of his writings. You may think that's a bit crazy for me to say, after all we've been through in Ecclesiastes, but most of the teachings in this book have been fairly clear and beautiful observations of life. I've said from the beginning that anyone who reads this book will find agreement with a large portion of what is said. Confronting death, the cyclical nature of life and history, the corruption of leaders, the foolishness of people. These are common ideas and principles. Yes, they're said beautifully. But they're ideas that people understand. Christian or not, we would agree on them. But the answer, the comfort for all of these observations and all these criticisms of life, that's where the disagreement will lie. Now, if you don't claim to be a Christian, this passage maybe is beautiful in its imagery, interesting in its context, but you will most likely not agree with the answer for death. You won't agree that it is good to remember your creator. But that's where you're wrong. And the preacher is right. Because the world doesn't know how to deal with death. The offering for the world to say, what is going on at the end of life, we're confused by it. The world is scared of it. Most people can't even process the idea of death, so they ignore it. They push it far away. It's as though they're not going to let them happen. Death won't hit me. One philosopher said that the modern mind intellectually knows that they are immortal, but practically, they won't accept it. And so we ignore it. The world ignores things. They eat food that tastes delicious, and they tend not to think about how it will affect their health. We jump out of planes to experience the rush of adrenaline, not thinking that the chute won't open. We like to cheat death by not thinking about it. It's often the world's position to death. Where we assign people to talk who, We assign people who talk about death as being too depressive to be around. And so we push them away, lock them away, leave them in some other group. Say, those are the depressives, we don't want to talk about them. Who wants to hear that? A preacher says, no, 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 that's not the way to approach death. Don't ignore it, don't push it away and lock it away in a dark corner as though it's not going to happen. It will happen, but here is how you find solace. It's not ignoring it. There is hope. Remember your Creator. That means you Christian, that means you non-Christian, remember your creator and death will become less scary, becomes less unwieldy, it becomes manageable. Sure, it will still be scary. It will be strong, but it will be less so because our creator commiserates with us in our death. Commiserate is a fun word, I have to say. Sounds sad, sounds depressing, sounds self-serving, a little mopey, but commiserate is, it's to empathize with someone. It's to feel the exact same feeling that they are having. It's to sympathize with someone. It's to understand and experience everything that they've experienced. When I say that our Creator commiserates with us on our deathbed, I'm telling you that our Creator is there for you. It's there for me. Is there to comfort us and speak peace to us because he went through it too. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of our creator experiencing all that we have experienced and more. It was Jesus Christ that we saw our creator face to face and it was in Jesus Christ that our creator died for us. The creator laid on his own deathbed. Our Creator didn't hear the beeping of a heart monitor, but his heart did stop. Our Creator had the shaky breaths as his life was coming to an end. Our Creator felt the pangs of death. He felt the fear of darkness. The light was dimming, the rain was falling. One commentator, when reading this passage, looks forward to Christ. He says, You know, there's a lot of weird things going on when Christ, Christ was hung on that cross. You wonder whether or not Solomon was actually speaking of that exact moment. When the clouds came over and darkness fell down, the light was dwindling, storms raged, earthquakes were happening during the death of Jesus Christ. But it's often also how we feel towards the end of life. It's all dwindling. So when you are young or when you are middle-aged or when you are old, when you are in your youth or in the autumn of life, when you are worried about your own death in anxiety, at night when it's dark, when no one else is with you, when you feel the weight of the world pressing down on you, remember your Creator. Our Creator understands those fears. Our Creator felt those fears. Our Creator came and died to alleviate those fears. So now he can understand and empathize with those. He can comfort you in your fears. And even when those fears don't subside, he will still be next to you, comforting you through it all. Primary example, think of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sweating blood because of his concern for what is coming. His anxiety, his fear. It's the creator who understands that same anxiety and fear you feel. That is the creator who will tell you, it is okay. I've been here too. I am here with you. Do you want comfort or do you want to be told nothingness is coming? Nothingness is waiting for you at the end of your anxiety because that's what the world will offer you. But the Bible says, no, he is there next to you. So I'll say again, remember your creator and be comforted. Moving on. From those who are experiencing death, we look to those who stand next to death, the mourners. Verse 3 makes a shift in the descriptions. Moving from when darkness is seen and the clouds move in all around us, we see the workers of commerce in a house or really in a city stopping their work because of death. Mourning is the most accurate response to death. The the description here can speak of a wealthy homeowner's death, a royalty or really any high-ranking official's funeral procession. Picture given shows of a city really shutting down as a whole because this death has occurred. Now, two weeks ago, Prince Philip died. Yesterday was his funeral. One of the big monarchs dies. The country of England essentially shuts down. Now, Philip isn't the height of the queen, but he is still seen in this position as being very high. I mean, he's been there for 60 years I watched part of the funeral myself, and uh, the moment of silence across the entire country was something else. And then I decided to look up what England normally does when a monarch dies. There's a whole list of things that happen. So when the queen dies, the country goes into mourning for 12 days, at minimum. Just 12 days, everything shuts down. Financial systems will ground to a halt. I read one article that the BBC would cancel all comedy programs for at least a week. Seems oddly specific. Everyone and everything in England would take time to respond to the loss of this great monarch. Verses 3 through 5, through the beginning of 5, describe that kind of cultural upheaval. We in America really haven't experienced that in a long while. Many of us don't have great memories, though oddly, we've dealt with it more recently than England has. Outside of Philip, the death of JFK in the 60s was shocking for our country. The bloody affair in Texas, it caused a time of mourning for the whole country. Things shut down for a long while. Businesses stopped being open. People stopped working. Events and parties were put on hold because the president had died. That's what death does. It causes us to stop. Stop in life. We could say mourning and the pause of life is to respect the loss of life. Right? We pause our life is to walk step by step with the one whose life has stopped as well. And so the keepers of the house tremble in fear of death because, or really just because of sadness, either one. That death is under the roof of the house. The strong men are no longer standing tall. They are bent over, weeping, or feeling the weight of death in their city. The grinders, either stone workers or those who are using a mill to grind down seed, have stopped because there is no work going on. No one's selling, no one's buying. It's a time of weeping and gnashing of teeth, not a time of grinding. So what do we do while we mourn the loss of a loved one? I've spoken at length about death over our time in Ecclesiastes. Just two weeks ago at Easter, I spoke about it as well. Those who mourn are often in a stupor of how to live. They're walking around in a dream state, not knowing what to say, what to do. I said on Easter that those who mourn often go about doing whatever comes natural. The routines of life can help those who are dealing with such a heavy sorrow. But here, in Ecclesiastes, even those who think I can go back to work to find some comfort are said, no, 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 stop. We need to pause. Don't go back to routine. They need to feel the weight of death. The doors on the street are shut. Either the businesses are done or the homes are closed. People aren't out and about. No one's welcoming guests. No one's buying and selling. What should they do instead of work? Where should they turn for their comfort if they can't just go into some routine? Our preacher says, remember your creator. Remember your creator in your morning. This is again a statement not many would immediately think about. Those who mourn are not thinking about God unless they're really mad at him. Instead they're thinking about the one who is lost. It's your brother, your father, your friend. You think about all the times that you had together. You remember conversations in the shape of their face. You remember the good times and the bad times. You try to hold on to a memory of the person who is lost. That's really how we process death hard memories to soften the pain. Our wise preacher says, no, 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 don't spend all your time thinking about the one who is lost. Don't wallow in the midst of this great sorrow. Instead, remember your creator. Put your mind upon him. Place your memories on the one who created you because the memories of the one who is lost won't bring you as much comfort as the creator will. Again, preachers trying to guide us On how to handle this life under the sun. He's critiquing our approach towards life, death, mourning, all the things that are around us. And the critique for all people is, you are looking for comfort in all the wrong places. You're dealing with your sorrow in a very poor way. Here is the best way to do it. Remember your creator. John 11 tells the story of Jesus Christ raising a man from the dead, Lazarus. Many of us know the story. It's a miraculous story, one that's only surpassed by the cross and the empty tomb. But the point I'm pushing for is the example of Jesus Christ approaching the tomb of Lazarus. There's a verse I always joked about knowing as a child because it's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. And Jesus wept. In that short verse, the sympathy of our creator is laid bare. Jesus Christ, the one who died for us on the cross is also the one who cried for those who died. He stood outside the tomb, knowing full well he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he still weeps for such a terrible thing to happen. Our creator weeps for death. It's not something that is a step along the path of life. It's not something that we look upon waiting it is a breaking of the normal way of things. When death occurs, we should mourn, but we should mourn by remembering our Creator because we, He will mourn with us. He will look upon this broken creation, this fallen world full of sick and dying people, and He will weep with us. He will care for us, He will sympathize with us. He will tell us to put down our work and to wait. He will put his arm around us and he will speak comfort to us. He'll be the caring friend and the loving parent we long for when our parents die. He'll be the brother that we want to share our difficulties with and he will be there to guide us and encourage us in our great mourning. So remember your creator in your mourning. And in your dying. He is what the world longs for when confronted with the fear of death, either in our own death or of the road of a death-loved one. But our preacher goes on from death. We need to keep moving. Goes on and speaks of nature as a whole, our final point. Verses 5 through 7 are by far the most difficult verses in our passage. They point to images that are really they're hard to decipher. And I haven't given you really the full in range of interpretations that can be found here in our passage because it would take far too long to walk through them all. It's safe to say that there are a number of really interesting passages, really number of interesting perspectives of all this passage. And all of them deal with the images of death. All of them deal with it in different ways. Some of them say that this is really just a description of the body breaking down. The grinders are the teeth, the strong back of the strong men, those kind of things some of them also jump to, like, this is certain areas of Jerusalem that are breaking down and falling apart, waiting for the Jerusalem to just be torn apart. And some, as I've said previously, speaking of death as an apocalypse to come, looking forward to the end of the age. All that to say, this is still about death in 5 through 7, though the images are foreign. What we get in 5 through 7, the ranges of range of images move from house and commerce into animals, trees, gold, silver, serving bowls, really strange things more reminiscent of the book of Revelation and Daniel than anything else. I don't see this as some great prophecy that we need to interpret, we need to plumb the depths of each and every little detail, find every little piece of this description. There are plenty of other books and commentaries that can point you in that direction, what this section screams to me is the widening of death. Right? In the first few verses, it spoke of a singular person heading toward death. As light was coming down, darkness and clouds rising up over them. And then we were widened to view the people mourning over those who have died. Those are the ones who look at the box and they see where we will all end up. This section of our passage takes one step further back. It looks at creation as a whole and it speaks of a world facing destruction. The almond tree blossoming. If you've ever seen almond trees blossom, it's white. The desires failing. These are all signs of old age of a world. A white al- almond tree pointing to the white hair. Grasshopper aging to a point where it can no longer jump. Desires of the world fail because the age of the world and the coming judgment It's being felt. Most clearly you can see it at the end of verse 5. Man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Man is coming to an end. The mourners know that all of us are approaching our end. The world is coming to an end. At some point there is a coming judgment. made reference to this in the introduction. Christ speaks of the end of the age. People running from the cities to hide in the hills. Crying out for rocks to fall on them for fear of this coming judgment. Verse 7 really hammers home that view. The dust returns to the earth as it was. It's a call back to the creation the curse. God speaking to Adam and all mankind in Genesis 3. From dust you came, and from dust you will return. It is the final curtain call of our preacher. He has said his peace, and he reminds all of mankind that they will return to dust. Their spirit will return to its creator and giver. And all this time, he says, remember your creator. When the end of the world comes, remember your creator. When all things seem to be heading toward their end, when your mini apocalypse happens, whatever it may be, remember your creator. So there's a poem that went through my mind and I've read two of them now already, but there's one poem in particular that went through my mind uh, this week as I was writing this sermon. I heard it once at a wedding, and it had just stuck with me. I couldn't find it because I'd only remember pieces of words and pieces of sentences, so I finally reached out to this couple who got married some like five or six years ago, and I said, what was this poem that was read at your wedding? And I said, it was called The Day the Saucers Came by Neil Gaiman. It's a fantasy and science fiction writer. It's about the end of the world, but it's also supposed to be a little funny because that's what he does. He takes humor to critique it. I want to read it all. It'll take about two minutes. Uh, Try and appreciate the images, and we'll we'll talk a little bit right afterwards. The day these saucers landed. That day, the saucers landed. Hundreds of them, golden, silent, coming down from the sky like great snowflakes. And the people of earth stood and stared as they descended, waiting, dry-mouthed, to find out what waited inside for us. None of us knowing if we would be here tomorrow. But you didn't notice because that day, the day the saucers came, by some strange coincidence, was the day that the graves gave up their dead. And the zombies pushed forth through soft earth or erupted, shambling and dull-eyed, unstoppable, came towards us, the living, and we screamed and ran. But you did not notice this because on the saucer day, which was zombie day, it was Ragnarok also. And the television screens showed us a ship built of dead man's nails, a serpent, a wolf, all bigger than the mind could hold and the cameraman could not get far enough away and when the gods came out, but you did not see them because on the saucer zombie battling God's day, the floodgates broke and each of us was engulfed by genies and sprites offering us wishes and wonders and eternities and charm and cleverness And true brave hearts and pots of gold. While giants FIFO-fummed across the land and killer bees. But you had no idea of any of this. Because that day, the saucer day, the zombie day, the Ragnarok and fairies day, the day the great winds came and snows and the cities turned to crystal, the day all plants died, Plastics dissolved, the day the computers turned, the screens telling us we would obey, the day angels, drunk and muddled, stumbled from the bars, and all the bells of London were sounded, the day animals spoke to us in Assyrian, the Yeti day, the fluttering capes and arrival of the time machine day, you didn't notice any of this because you were sitting in your room, not doing anything, not even reading, not really. Just looking at your telephone, wondering if I was going to call. Now I appreciate that poem because it speaks of a love. A love that ignores all other things happening outside. It's funny, it's outlandish. It gives a view of love found in someone on the phone. That's the world's option for the end of the world. Find love with another human to deal with the anxiety of what could be apocalypse. Yet yeah, that's not what the Bible says. I said with the preacher. Remember your creator in those days. Those Ragnarok days. Those days when everything turns against it. Because he commiserates with you in your death. He sympathizes with you in your mourning. And most impressively he renews this creation. You don't need to accept all things coming to an end. You can remember your creator who will make all things new. Christ has said he has gone to prepare a place for us. And there is a promise of a new heavens and a new earth and we'll all be made new again. The finality of our preacher to give us verses seven and eight are Ecclesiastes through and through. Our body goes to the grave, our soul goes to God. The joy of looking forward to our creator means that we can see beyond all of that. We can tell the world when all things look grim, when pandemics rage and civil unrest seems to happen every week, I will look to my creator. And the world has said, let's make civil changes. Let's elect certain rulers who will point us in the right direction. Find love when all else fails. These are fine things to do, but we will never get perfection in this world. We can still pursue it we can still look for justice and find goodness in some ways, but we should not be surprised when it doesn't happen. We should instead remember our creator because he has defeated death and he will make all things new. And that's what the empty tomb cries out for us. A creator who is there. A creator who will make all things new again. The resurre- resurrection of Lazarus was just a foretaste of the true resurrection found in Jesus Christ. And so I say, as the grasshopper falls, as the golden bowls break, silver cords are cut, all things will be made new in Jesus Christ. So, remember your creator. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is such a joy to know you are a creator who has come, who has sent his son to come and commiserate with us, to bring us sympathy and to renew all things. Lord, help us to remember you in all the areas of life. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning now to the table.